welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about things that have made the Scriptures real to us so that we can draw more power out of them because we need that. And hopefully it helps us understand Come Follow Me as well. I'm your host, Kerry Muelstein, and I'm alone on this one. It's kind of a short cast. I actually have no idea how long this is going to take. Uh, it's going to be one where we're just doing history and storyline. I, I may draw a lesson or two as we go along, but what uh, I'm finding is that in this lesson and the next one, uh, it's we're just skipping a ton of material. I totally get it, not criticizing uh, the curriculum writers or anything like that, but I am finding that uh, some of the most powerful lessons that we will learn from the Old Testament is from the storyline but you're not going to get it if we don't cover some of the storyline that we're, we're skipping in the assigned reading. And so if you have the time to read it all, I recommend it. I really highly recommend it. But I understand that most of us are going to focus on the assigned reading. I, I don't want my podcast to make it so people don't do readings or don't focus on the scriptural test, text. I certainly don't want that. But I am hoping that I can provide some of the gaps so that as I do what will probably be, I haven't figured out exactly yet, but what will probably be the first podcast for next week where we'll have to do some really crucial storyline and we'll draw some lessons that I think are incredibly powerful lessons, but we won't be able to understand them if we don't know what's been happening and what's happening in that storyline. So we're going to start at uh, in this one at the end of last week's reading, which ended in, in 1 Kings 19 with Elisha being called by um, Elijah after he's uh, been down at Mount Sinai and he throws his mantle on Elisha and he, and he walks away. Um, we're going to start with that, the storyline right after that, and we're going to go all the way through the storyline that's assigned and a couple chapters into the gap. There's a gap where I think we end at chapter seven and then uh, we pick up for next week's reading in chapter 17. Uh, so we're going to get through like chapter 12 or something like that, because and then we'll we'll do the rest of the storyline. And the, I think the first one of next time, because you're just not going to get this stuff if we don't do it. So here we go. Put your seatbelts on. We're going to zoom through this stuff uh, and I'm not going to have uh, pictures or anything. I will highly recommend to you um, on my other YouTube channel the Old Testament class videos. There are several that are for Elisha and some others. I'll put them in the sh uh, show notes here. They'll help you understand the storyline of Elisha. Some of the stuff that I covered, say, with uh, Kristen or with Lamar, you'll get a little review with that, but with maps and pictures <clears throat> and, uh, and some of the storyline that we're going to do here, you'll get maps and pictures. So uh, you'll get more detail there in, in some things. So I highly recommend that you watch that if you have any interest at all. All right, so after Elijah calls Elisha, um, Ben-Hadad, who's king of Syria, now he's also just, uh, we don't read about him doing this, but he's just been told to anoint Hazael to be king of Syria, and he must do that. We don't get the story told, and it's going to be a while before Hazael is king of Syria, but uh, he, he must do that. So uh, right now, it's still Ben-Hadad who is king of Syria, and he comes to war against Ahab, king of Israel, so the same Ahab that's been causing problems for Elijah and so on, and, and whose wife is Jezebel. Uh, he is besieged, and the kingdom of Israel is besieged uh, and attacked by Ben-Hadad. So Ben-Hadad uh, attacks some places, then he comes and lays siege to Samaria, the capital, uh, and is uh, having great success in this siege, siege. So Ahab offers to pay a huge ransom to Ben-Hadad if he'll just stop the siege. Uh, Ben-Hadad says he'll only stop the siege. There's some back and forth and give and take, but eventually he says he'll only take the, stop the siege if he can take whatever he wants from the palace, uh, including the entire palace and everything in it, the, the wives and everything else. And that's really claiming the throne. And this would be uh, basically Ahab saying, okay, 
uh, we're giving you the kingdom. And Ahab refuses to do that after talking to his advisor. So uh, then a prophet comes to tell Ahab that God will deliver Israel. So Ahab is wicked. Israel, some of them we know are following Jehovah. Some of them are worshiping both Jehovah and Baal. But still, God is going to um, deliver them. And so uh, that's what this prophet tells him. He says he's going to deliver them, but not through wicked Ahab. Ahab is too wicked. So the princes of Israel, uh, who I'm just going to presume are more righteous than Ahab. So these are some of the, the tribal leaders and so on. They'll be the ones who uh, deliver Israel. And Israel does soundly defeat Syria. Um, and then Syria comes to war against Israel again at Aphek. That's just north of modern-day Tel Aviv. It's the same place where the Ark was lost to the Philistines in the days of Eli and his sons. Um, the Israelites are, again, wildly successful in battle at this point. And even those that escape the Israelite army are killed by a wall that falls on them at Aphek. Um, and Ben-Hadad has to come and seek mercy from Ahab. And he receives it after making great political successions to Israel. Then a prophet is uh, sent to tell Ahab of God's displeasure in letting Ben-Hadad survive after God had delivered him to, into his hands and he, he was supposed to kill him. And so this prophet comes, and this is, again, we've talked about prophets, kind of uh, an inspired guy. I don't know how he fits into any hierarchy, if there is a hierarchy. But he comes, and he's going to speak in terms of symbolic action. And so uh, as part of the symbolic action, he's, he's going to do something, and I don't know if this person, I don't know, uh, somehow it works out to teach a couple of lessons, uh, because he comes uh, to teach Ahab that he'd done the wrong thing in sparing this person, uh, and he, the prophet comes up to a person and asks him to smite him, and that person refuses to smite him, and so that person is actually punished by God, he, he dies. Uh, so again, we have to think he's been sent to another room. This is uh, short term from God's point of view and so on. Um, but this is symbolically the way that God is telling Ahab that he was supposed to smite Syria and then Ahab refused to smite them. So Ahab will die. Uh, the prophet then does find someone who will smite him. And then he disguises himself and comes into Ahab and, and eventually tells Ahab that because he's been disobedient, that he will be smitten and die. Now we get this really interesting story. Um, this is in, uh, let me remind myself, I think it's in chapter 21, but I'm looking to see, yeah, it is chapter 21, 1 Kings chapter 21, where uh, there's a vineyard in uh, Jezreel. So Samaria and the hills of uh, the central hills there just north of the kingdom of Judah is their capital, but they have a, uh, a winter capital because Samaria is up in the mountains and it can get a little bit cold. So they have a winter capital in the Jezreel Valley that's called Jezreel. And uh, so it's a, it's a wonderful little tale. I've been there. Uh, they've done great excavations there and so on. Anyway, uh, Naboth, and so that's where the kings spend a lot of their time is in Jezreel. It's also good for staging battles in certain places and so on because of it, the, the position it holds. It's not far from this little neck of land that we've talked about that controls the in and out on the eastern side of the Jezreel Valley. It's a little ways away from there, but not too far. So Ahab, there's a guy named Naboth that has a vineyard at Jezreel that apparently is beautiful and in a great position. It must be by the palace and has a great view and whatever else. And Ahab's wanting to expand it or something. So he wants to take the vineyard of Naboth, but Naboth refuses to give it to him. It's family land. And that is so written into the law of Moses that family land stays in the family that no one, not even the king, can overcome that. So... Uh, he refuses to give it to Ahab, and this really, really frustrates Ahab. Well, Jezebel sees this. She is not a nice person, and they don't have those kinds of laws in Phoenicia where she's from. She gets really upset, 
And she uh, and she sees well, she sees that he's upset when she learns why she decides to take matters into her own hands. So she proclaims a feast and invites Naboth to come and, and have a prominent position there at the uh, feast as part of the festivities. And then she gets someone to accuse him of blasphemy and they haul him out and stone him to death. And then Jezebel tells Ahab, hey, the field's available. Uh, you can take it. And uh, Ahab does. So Jezebel is not a good person in any way at all. And we see this uh, highlighted in this story again. Well, I, I guess this is enough is enough. And Elijah is told by the Lord to go to Ahab and, and he does so. And he tells him that his posterity, not only is he going to die, but his posterity will not hold the throne. He's not going to be able. And remember, this is one of the first dynasties to be successful in, in the kingdom of Israel, where you've had a number of uh, fathers not, or sons not able to really succeed their fathers. They come to the throne and then they die right away. Uh, but we've had a dynasty for a little while here. Well, uh, Ahab is the son of Omri. So Omri started this dynasty and Ahab uh, keeps it. His son will successfully succeed him, but it's not going to stay multi-generation after that. Um, so he says that his posterity won't hold onto the throne and that Jezebel is going to die and that the dogs and the birds are going to eat her dead body. All right, remember that. We're going to come back to that. So now we're going to jump back to Judah. And this is where things can get confusing in the text because they, they kind of go back and forth between Judah uh, the story of the kingdom of Judah and the story of the kingdom of uh, Israel, it's kind of a meanwhile back at the ranch kind of a thing, uh, and it can get really confusing. In fact, I'm, I'm pledging that I am going to write this storyline up in a way that hopefully is readable and makes sense and turn it into a little booklet uh, for next time we do Come Follow Me Old Testament so that people can kind of follow the storyline a little bit better. Anyway, so back in Judah, meanwhile, back at the ranch in Judah, uh, Asa dies. Asa had been a righteous king, and his son Jehoshaphat takes the throne. I love the name Jehoshaphat. I think some of you should name your children Jehoshaphat. Anyway, he's righteous, and he seeks to rid the kingdom of idolatry, and he sends out teachers and priests and prophets to guide the people in righteousness, and he's blessed the Lord, and he fortifies cities, and his kingdom strengthened because of his obedience and faithfulness, uh, where he worships Jehovah and Jehovah alone and tries to get the people to worship Jehovah alone. He's just a good, righteous king. We don't get anyone like this ever in Israel. Um, even the neighboring uh, kingdoms start to pay tribute to him because he's so successful because he keeps the covenant so well. But he, he also is, as his kingdom grows and he's got this larger neighbor, and we should remember that the kingdom of Israel is larger uh, geographically, uh, population-wise, politically, militarily. It's just larger and more powerful. And as he's growing, uh, he needs to know if he becomes a threat, he's going to have problems with the people in the north. So he tries to make an alliance and, and does something that probably politically seems like it's wise, but when you're dealing with some super wicked people, spiritually, it's not the wisest thing. Jehoshaphat has his son marry Ahab's daughter, and that forms a political alliance that I think Jehoshaphat's going to regret. Um, but anyway, the, the, his son marries Ahab's daughter, and we get peace and cooper cooperation between the countries for a number of years. But it's not very long before wicked King Ahab comes to righteous King Jehoshaphat and says, we've got a treaty and I need you to come to battle with me. Uh, the Syrians, uh, who there's been all this back and forth uh, battle between Syria and Israel. And remember, Syria is directly north of Israel. It's that, that's their, their border and the biggest uh, group that they are bordering with. And uh, David had made it so they controlled much of Syria, but they've lost that control upon the division of the kingdoms. Anyway, um, the Syrians in what's called Ramat Gilead, uh, or Gilead, uh, this is where the Balm of Gilead is from, that kind of thing. And so Ramat means the high place, the, the highest hill. So uh, this is modern-day Ajloon area in, in modern-day Jordan today. Uh, there's a castle there and so on in that area. 
Um, they, they, uh, he wants him to go to battle with them at Ramat Gilead. That's where the Syrians kind of are, are taking their stronghold, and he wants to see if he can uh, overthrow this. So um, they are going to seek counsel from prophets. That's a tradition that you seek counsel from prophets before you go up to battle. But of course, Ahab doesn't turn to true prophets. He turns to false prophets. And false prophets always tell you what you want to hear. That's important to keep in mind. I, 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 we're just going to draw a couple lessons as we go along. The world is full of pro false prophets. And I'm not saying necessarily people who are saying I'm a prophet, but people who want you to follow them and listen to them and are telling you the way you should think about things and the way that uh, you, you should uh, do things and, and how things work. Uh, and typically, they tell you what you want to hear. And that's if you have a prophet who always tells you what you want to hear, you probably don't have a true prophet, either that or your, your will is very, very aligned with God's. But typically, prophets are going to tell you some things, at least, that make you uncomfortable because you have to get a little uncomfortable to get closer to God. So they're going to tell you uh, to repent or to uh, not believe the world when it talks this way and, and so on and so on, right? They're going to ask you to stretch yourself. That's a true prophet. False prophets just say to Ahab, yep, go to war. Sounds like a great idea. But Jehoshaphat says, you know, uh, you've got all these prophets that don't seem to me like real prophets. Do you have any true prophets who really prophesy in the name of Jehovah around? Um, and uh, they go and find one. It's, it's kind of a funny story. Ahab says, well, there's this one guy, Micaiah, but I don't really like him because he always says bad stuff about me. So I don't like him. Uh, that's another thing that's worth noting. If, the, if you have a prophet who you've decided you aren't following uh, because... They say stuff you don't like, that's, you should probably ask yourself about that, right? Uh, and I think that that's what a lot of people are struggling with right now, that there are some uh, principles or teachings or policies that uh, while they like many things in the church, there are a couple of things they really don't like. And so they're going to find another prophet uh, and false prophets that tell them what they want instead of a true prophet, right? So that's what Ahab's doing. He's like, nope, I know this guy's a true prophet, but I'm actually not going to consider him that anymore because he tells me stuff I don't like. We do that. We, it's a huge problem in the church today. Uh, we are doing it all over the place. Anyway, they do go find this prophet, and he says, yeah, great idea. He's just a little bit sarcastic. I like Micaiah. He's, it's a, he says, this is, well, what a great idea. Yeah, go to battle. That's perfect because then you'll die. Right. And, and that's what he tells them. The reason you should go to battle is because God is mad with you, Ahab, and he wants you to die in this battle. So please do go to battle. Uh, and Ahab can. Uh, so he's got this little sarcastic story in there uh, where he says, well, uh, since you because they start to ask him about that. And, and he says, well, you know, what happened is that there were uh, a bunch of uh, spirits that uh, were trying to do God's will. And someone said, we need Ahab to die. What are we going to do And this one spirit said? Oh, I'll take care of it. I'll lie to everyone and say, yep, go to battle. It's going to be fine. And that way you'll go to battle and it'll die. So please go. And uh, that's what Micaiah says. And Ahab is not so excited about this. So he convinces Jehoshaphat. I don't know how he convinces him to do this, but he says, Jehoshaphat will go to battle. You dress like a king. I'm going to dress like a normal guy so that they'll come and try and fight you and kill you. And they're going to leave me alone. And somehow Jehoshaphat goes for that. So they, they go and they engage in battle with the Syrians in the hills of Gilead. And um, the Lord's not very happy uh, with Jehoshaphat because he's working with wicked Ahab and he chastises Jehoshaphat. Meanwhile, what happens is that the uh, battle gets hot around Jehoshaphat because they figure he's the king. He must be Ahab. And then Jehoshaphat 
starts yelling and it seems like he's telling him, I'm not uh, Ahab. And so they leave him alone. And Ahab's over in a chariot, not being noticed. And some random archer with a random bow shot shoots Ahab and it goes right through his armor and kills him. Uh, and his blood starts dripping into the, the, the chariot and all sorts of stuff. And he's going to survive for a little while and he's going to die. Uh, so that's, that's kind of interesting. Uh, and then again, um, Jehoshaphat is chastised, but he sends out leaders in his country to guide his people into righteousness, and they start to repent. He, he repents, and everyone's trying to do good in Judah. Uh, but then we get this coalition of Moabites and Ammonites and Seerites, that's probably Edomites, Seer is in Edom, um, that are going to come to war against Jehoshaphat. So he's going to have his own uh, war because he's been starting to control these areas, gain control of these areas again that, that David had once controlled. And uh, so they're coming to battle against him to not be under his control. And so he and his people seek for help from the Lord with, with earnest hearts. And, and he prays to God in the temple, and he reminds God of their need and what the Lord has done for them in the past. And the Lord answers Jehoshaphat through a priest in the temple, and he promises him victory. And uh, Jehoshaphat uh, encourages his people to have faith, and they go out to battle near Tekoa. That's just south of Bethlehem. It's where Amos is going to be from. Um, and as they approach their enemies, they learn that uh, their enemies have fought amongst themselves and that they already have a victory. They don't even have to do fighting because their, their enemies gathered together in this coalition and then they all attacked each other. And so they praise God and Jehoshaphat then again allies himself with the wicked king of Israel and is again chastised. Now it's family relation, right? So he's got he's got these ties. And so he keeps honoring it. And God keeps telling him, what are you hanging out with these bad guys for? Some lessons in there as well. Anyway. Um, and it's not just hanging out, helping, right? So when Ahab died, so this is meanwhile back at the ranch in, in uh, kingdom of Israel, Ahab died in that battle. His son Ahaziah becomes king, and Moab rebels against Ahaziah. Um, so the Moabites, some of them were controlled by the Judahites, and some of them were controlled by the Israelites. And by Israelites, we mean members of the kingdom of Israel or the kingdom of Israel. So Moab rebels against him, um, and uh, then uh, Ahaziah has an accident, and he seeks a prophecy from a false Philistine god housed in the Philistine city of Ekron, where my wife found that four-horned incense altar when she was excavating there that we talked about once. Anyway, uh, that was also Ekron's in, in the Samson story and so on in the Ark story. Uh, Elijah tells him, so he, he goes and asks for, a, he doesn't want to ask from a true prophet because he knows they don't like him, so he asks for a Philistine prophet. Hey, am I going to be all right? And they say, oh, sure, you'll be fine. And Elijah comes and tells him, nope, you're going to die from this accident. Ahaziah doesn't like it. He tries to capture Elijah, but God protects him with fire uh, and kills people who are trying to get him. Uh, then Ahaziah dies without a male heir. So his brother Jehoram takes the throne. Now, in the meantime, we get this story that we've already talked about with Elijah traveling with Elijah, and Elijah goes across the River Jordan and is taken up by a chariot of fire, and uh, his mantle falls, and Elisha heals the or parts of the river Jordan with the mantle, and then he heals the, the spring at Jericho and all that stuff that I talked about with Lamar and the, the youth who are killed by the bears and so on, all that story. Now, then we get back to the storyline of Ahab's son, Jehoram, who succeeds uh, his brother Ahaziah uh, to be king of Israel. And he actually does start to do some good things. He puts the ball worship away. So his mother, uh, actually, I'm, I'd have to check. I can't remember if Jezebel's his mother. He might be from another wife. But anyway, uh, I don't remember that right now. But uh, it, but certainly his father has been espousing uh, worship of Baal, and, and this has been a big thing in the uh, country. But um, uh, Jehoram is going to say, 
let's let's get rid of Baal worship. But he doesn't get rid of that idolatry that Jeroboam had started with those calves at Bethel and Dan. And uh, he continues the way the Bible puts it in, in Jeroboam's sin. So they've got that kind of idolatry, but it gets rid of the worst kind of idolatry. So that's a good step. Not enough, but it's a good step. Then we got a guy named Mesha, king of Moab, who rebels against Israel, and Jehoram convinces Jehoshaphat to, of Judah and uh, Jehoshaphat's Edomite vassal, because he's still controlling Edom, uh, to go to war against Moab with them. So they're all going to join, and Moab's been fighting against uh, Jehoshaphat anyway, so it probably seems like a great idea to him. Uh, so they're all going to go to battle against Moab. Um, but as they're going out to besiege uh, and fight against Moab, they're having a hard time coming up with enough water for the army. So they, they asked for a prophet to give them some guidance. Um, and Elisha is summoned and he, he says, he's going to counsel with them out of respect for Jehoshaphat, not Jehoram. He is not there. He wouldn't talk to them at all if it was just Jehoram, but Jehoshaphat's a righteous dude. So he's going to talk to him. I think that's the exact translation, righteous dude. Anyway, as he listens to, to music, the spirit of prophecy comes on him and he counsels the king to dig ditches in the valley. And he says that they'll receive both water and victory because of those ditches. So in the morning, the trenches are full of water. Hallelujah. They, they get all this water. They can drink of it. But also in the morning, the Moabites woke up, wake up and they see the, the morning sun being reflected in all that water. The field is full of this water, which is not normal. They've, they've never seen this before. So it's but it's being reflected a blood red because of the rising sun. And they assume that it's blood. And they, they assume that what has happened to the, the people in front of them is the same thing that had happened to the Moabites and the Edomites uh, before, that as they gathered for army, they all fell on each other and killed themselves. Remember when that happened? So Judah didn't even have to fight them. This is what Moab assumes has happened. So they're like, fantastic. Let's go out and get the spoil. We'll take all their stuff. It'll be great. So they go running out to take advantage of the fact that these guys, these guys have all killed each other, but they haven't killed each other. And they get out there and find that there are three horse or uh, hosts organized. They're ready to fight them. Uh, and, and, and they do fight them and they smite them. And uh, they're just really beating the tar out of the Moabites. So the king of Moab, uh, he's going to attempt to kill the king of Edom in battle, but he can't. So instead he retreats behind a wall and he sacrifices his son uh, to ask gods to help him. And it, it's a, a little bit of a weird story. It's hard to figure out what's going on, but it seems like what happens is that this disgusts the Edomites and the Israelites uh, and Judahites so much that they leave battle and it ends the conflict. They're just not going to be part of, of this child sacrifice business and the battle somehow ends over this. I'm not clear exactly why it's a little bit of a weird story that we can't fully understand. And I think we're missing some of Lamar's C's, right? We're uh, it's not complete, uh, and so on. Anyway, now it's worth noting that this is different from the account left by Mesha himself. We, we actually have some inscriptions from Mesha who records that he was successful in battle against Omri's son. I would assume that's his descendant. You, you say son, there's not a word for grandson or great grandson or something like that, but, uh, Omri's descendant, probably his grandson, uh, and, and that by Mesha's own might, he throws off the yoke of Israel and he made his country free. That's what uh, Mesha himself carves into an inscription. And the truth probably lies somewhere between those, the biblical account and the, uh, the account by Mesha. It's, it's a little hard to figure out what's going on there, but I think that might be part of why we get this odd ending that the, the Bible's not going to fully say what, uh, that Mesha frees himself and Mesha's probably taking it further than it actually happened. Anyway. We get uh, this interesting story where one of the sons of the prophets, this group that we've talked about, and he's been uh, following Elisha and so on, and he dies, and his widow cries to Elisha that she can't meet her debts 
and a creditor is about to take her two sons into bondage to meet the debt. So Elisha asks uh, what she has in the house, and he learns that she has some oil. So he tells her to borrow every vessel she can from any neighbors or anywhere she can find. She gets all sorts of uh, vessels and begins pouring her oil into them, and she fills every vessel with the oil of her little vessel, and her vessel still has oil in it. Uh, so this multiplication of oil is a fantastic miracle, and Elisha tells her, sell the oil and meet the debt and live off of the rest. Uh, so again, this miracle working prophet has so many miracles that then uh, people will recognize Christ as a great prophet and eventually the Messiah because they see him uh, equaling and then surpassing Elisha and Elijah. All right, so Elisha keeps traveling past Shunem, and, and there's a woman there, and, and we did that story with Lamar, so I'm not going to go into it here, but it's a fantastic story. Um, Elisha travels to Gilgal down by Jericho, and he dines with the sons of the prophets. It's, there's a famine going on, but he dines with them. And they make some pottage, but they accidentally put a poisonous gourd in the pot. And Elisha learns that uh, of that, and he puts some meal, so some some kind of grain, uh, flour from grain, uh, probably barley or emmer. But anyway, uh, he puts it in the pot, and he says, "Okay, it's safe now." And they all eat it, and they're all fine. And then man brings some food to Elisha, and Elisha asks for it to be served through to the entire company. And there's a, not enough food for them all, but when they set the food out, there's plenty and even some left over. So again, these miracles of multiplication of food. You have the fantastic story of uh, Naaman, who is the captain of the host of Syria, who's been fighting against these guys, but he's struck with leprosy. And his wife has a maidservant who's an Israelite, probably brought back from the spoils of war, right? In one of the, the battles where the Syrians were successful against the Israelites. Um, and she tells the family about the, uh, Elisha and how it can perform all sorts of miracles. And so Naaman seeks out Elisha with a letter from the king and great amounts of gold and silver. And Naaman goes to the king of Israel. Uh, and uh, he thinks that this whole thing is a plot to give the Syrians an excuse for war since the king can't heal anyone of leprosy, but Elisha sends word to have Naaman brought to him, and Naaman arrives at Elisha's house, but Elisha only sends out his servant, presumably Gehazi, to Naaman, and he tells him to wash in the Jordan seven times, and he'll be healed, and Naaman says, I was looking for some great task or event, and there are better rivers in Syria, and why should I do this? And he's just going to storm off and go home and not take the chance of getting healed. But his servant says, you know what? If he'd asked you to do a great thing, you would have done it. Why not try a simple thing? So there's some great lessons in that. Also in listening to someone who you would think is under you and so on, right? Uh, he's humble enough to listen to him. Great stories. Naaman does go wash in the Jordan River and he's healed. Just what a fantastic story. So many lessons from that. Anyway, um, Naaman tries to give Elisha a gift, uh, but Elisha refuses. You see, I don't work miracles for money. Uh, so Naaman asks if he can take dirt from Israel home, and he vows to worship only Jehovah uh, and asks pardon that he'll have to accompany the king when he worships other gods. So that's that's pretty good stuff, actually. It's a nice conversion story. When he leaves, Gehazi runs after Naaman, and he accepts the gift that Naaman had offered. And Elisha knows what Gehazi has done, and, and Gehazi's smitten with leprosy. Uh, as kind of a symbolic lesson. Now, I, I don't know if Gehazi's healed like uh, Miriam was, or I don't know what happens with that story. I kind of suspect so. We should also remember that leprosy, uh, the way the word translated as leprosy in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean leprosy. It means some kind of uh, bad skin condition. So it can be leprosy. It could be like eczema. It could be hives. It could be any number of things. Anyway, while Elisha is with the sons of the prophets, they're out cutting wood to build a place to live, and a, a borrowed axe head sinks into the Jordan River, and Elisha causes it to float so they can get it back. There's just so many wonderful, miraculous stories. Now, during all this time, Ben-Hadad and the Syrians have been continuing to wage war against Israel, and Elisha keeps warning the king of Israel of their strategies. He says they're going to come here, they're going to come there, they're going to come here, they're going to come there, and the king of Syria figures out that this is why 
Uh, he thinks that there's a spy and they're missing. And then someone says, nope, they've just got a prophet who can tell them whatever is going on. Uh, and it's interesting because Elisha doesn't really like the kings of Israel and they're not particularly righteous, but God's helping them anyway. Uh, and so uh, they decide, the Syrians decide they need to go get Elisha. And this is when we get that great sto uh, story that I did with Kristen Walker-Smith about they that be with us are made than, more than they that be with them. One of my favorite stories in all of scripture, one of the most powerful stories ever. Uh, the quote for that I read from Elder Holland, I think is powerful. Just please remember that there's so much more going on that we cannot see. And that so much of it, if you're a covenant keeper, is for your good. It's fantastic. Just remember it. Anyway, then Elisha prophesies of a seven-year famine in Israel, uh, but he helps that Shunammite woman and her household survive. And he tells Hazael that he will be the next king of Assyria, and he prophesies that he'll do much harm to Israel. So this is the same Hazael that Elijah was supposed to anoint king of Syria, and I presume he did, but Elisha does it now. Uh, anyway, then meanwhile, we get Jehoshaphat. He's uh, this, uh, Jehoshaphat's son, who is Jehoram. Uh, he has started ruling in Judah wickedly, and this is probably due to the influence of his marriage to the daughter of Ahab. Remember, he's, he's married Ahab's daughter, Athaliah. Um, and, and she's having a bad effect on him. So he begins his rule by killing all of his brothers and anyone else who he sees as a threat to his power. That's not good stuff. Edom revolts and gains independence during his reign because God's not helping this bad dude. Uh, Elijah writes to him, uh, or Elisha writes to him, uh, that he and his kingdom will be stricken because of his wickedness. And the Philistines and the Arabians raid the kingdom and take spoils from the palace. And all of his sons, but Jehoahaz, who's also called Ahaziah, that, that, that we're going to get people with a couple of names uh, a number of times here, so we're going to have to keep track of that. But he has a son named Jehoahaz, whose nickname is Ahaziah. It's kind of like William or Bill Clinton, right? Um, all of his sons are slain, and Jehoram contracts a disease of the bowels and dies a painful death, right? But his son Ahaziah, who's also known as Jehoahaz and Azariah, all right? So he's got three names. It's the same guy, just everyone likes his nicknames. Uh, he takes the throne, and he is, uh, remember, he's also the nephew of Joram, king of Israel, because we've got this uh, interrelationship here. And he continues to lead Judah into idolatry in a manner similar to the kings of Israel. So we're, we're still getting all this bad stuff going on. And he's guided in this by his mother, Athaliah, who's the daughter of Ahab. Uh, and she uh, is descended from wicked queen Jezebel. So because of her Phoenician mother, she was idolatrous, and she steers her son and his whole kingdom towards idolatry. So this is bad news. Uh, this intermarriage is, is really not working out well for um, Judah. And uh, while it may have been politically wise, it was not spiritually religiously wise. It's one of the, the mistakes that Jehoshaphat, righteous King Jehoshaphat made. Uh, so think about what lessons you can learn from that as well. Anyway, Elisha sends one of the sons of the prophets out to a guy named Jehu. Now, this is the guy that Elijah was supposed to anoint as being the king of Israel. I presume he did, but it wasn't time yet, just like it wasn't time for Hazael yet. But now it's getting to be time for Jehu. Now, Jehu is quite a guy uh, in a number of ways, uh, good and bad. So he's the captain of the host. He's like the general, right? And they're still out in Gilead fighting, same place where Ahab had died. The battle's still going on, or the war is still going on. Uh, and Elisha goes, sends the son of the prophet out to anoint him, king of Israel, and remind him about the prophecy that Ahab's house would perish. So Jehu says, okay, I guess it's time. So he gets all the leaders of the armies behind him, the, uh, the Jehoram and no one else. I mean, these kings have not been out with them for, since Ahab died. It's just been these, these generals, and uh, Jehu is their guy. And so they all reunite behind Jehu, and he rides to Jezreel. And I, I love there's this little... Uh, line where uh, they're looking from Jezreel, the, the little palace in the summer, you know, capital 
there in Jezreel in the Jezreel Valley. And they see someone coming and they say, ah, must be Jehu because no one drives a chariot furiously like that, right? He's, he's just a crazy chariot driver. He, and, uh, and they can tell by the way he's driving. Oh, that's Jehu. And uh, so Joram and Ahaziah come out to meet him. So we've got the king of Israel and the king of Judah, and he kills him. So by one account, it says he kills Joram uh, when they first met, and then he follows Ahaziah and slays him between Jezreel and Megiddo, and then he finally dies at Megiddo. That's the second Kings 9 account. Um, but by another account, Ahaziah escapes to Samaria, uh, but he's found and, and brought by Jehu to be slain. That's the second Chronicles 22 account. Anyway, after that, Jehu will kill Jezebel. It's this uh, interesting story where he comes driving up to the, the city in this crazy manner, and they're looking out, and she can tell it's him, and she starts saying, uh, is it peace, Shalom? So you can translate in, in the King James, it's like, is it peace? Is it peace? But it might also just be because Shalom is also how you say hi. So it's maybe, you know, hi, uh, are you coming peacefully? But, but maybe just, hey, let's, you know, I'm saying hi because we're going to be friends. Uh, but Jehu says, throw her out the window. And there's some uh, um, eunuchs up there who toss her out the window. Um, and then he goes in and he kills all of Ahab's descendants, as well as all the relatives of Ahaziah, sorry, Ahaziah, who are in the city. He calls every, he kills all of them. And he calls a great feast for the worshipers of Baal. And they come together. Oh, good. Going to be a great feast. And he kills them all. And he purges Israel of Baal worship. Um, but he doesn't turn from the idolatry of Jeroboam. So he's trying to get things back on track. He's pretty violent as he does it. And I'm not saying anything about whether good or bad or in between. I don't know. I mean, a lot of it is according to the law of Moses. If you have people who are fostering idolatry and trying to force idolatry on the people, then you're supposed to kill them. So all of this is, well, I don't know about killing all of the descendants who are political threats to his becoming king, but if they, my guess is that they're following Jezebel and they're all trying to promote uh, worship of Baal, but I don't know that for sure. But all this stuff about Baal, that's certainly part of the law of Moses. Anyway, he's a violent, violent guy, and there's some trickery involved here. Um, he does, by the way, he goes in and eats, and then he says, okay, someone go out and bury Jezebel, and they come out and they say, ah, Looks like the dogs and the birds have gotten her. There's just a couple little parts of her body left. So that prophecy was fulfilled. Anyway, um, so he, he does a lot to get Israel doing better. He still keeps those false uh, calves, right? Those, those false gods in Dan and Bethel. All kings of Israel will. No one gets rid of that. Um, but during his reign, uh, and he's very powerful, but Hazael, king of Syria, starts to take over a lot of uh, Israelite territory on the east side of Jordan. So the battles that they've been fighting over there against the Syrians, when Jehu leaves, they don't go that well. And Hazael starts to take over a lot of that territory. Now, here's where we're going to get some crazy stuff, and we're going to uh, stop uh, right about, well, maybe this is the right place to stop. So next time, we'll start with the story of Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab, and the mother of Ahaziah and how she just goes completely wonky. And then we're going to also learn some, some lessons that we can learn from the storyline, because we're going to get all the way up to 2 Kings 17 in the fall of, of the kingdom of Israel uh, to the Assyrians. Uh, this is uh, some momentous stuff. Uh, it's the story of uh, many of our ancestors, many people listening to this podcast. This is our ancestors and how Israel gets scattered. There are a lot of lessons to learn in it. Uh, but we needed this storyline to, to understand some of the lessons I'm going to try and teach next time. So I hope that's helpful for you. I know that's kind of a bird's eye uh, drive-by uh, account of a lot of history, but hopefully it's helpful for you and, and primes the pump for us. And I hope you can uh, read uh, at least some of it in the scriptural text, but make sure you read the scriptural text and drawing power from the scriptures. I believe that the Spirit uh, it will be a catalyst for you and the Spirit will come. And, and bless you, and, and you'll have that communion you need as you're communing back to be with God. Uh, that's my prayer and my, my hope, 
in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.